KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. The sudden retirement of San Diego Sheriff is raising questions over who will lead going forward, a dream that will have to wait as single-payer health care for California doesn't even get a vote, and the start of something new as San Diego's pro-woman soccer team takes the pitch. I'm Matt Hoffman, and this is KPBS Roundtable. Long ago, when the public square was the only place to share news, events, and happenings, people were drawn to it. Living in community with others was the route to understanding each other and the world around us. The public square has changed dramatically, but our need to learn and understand one another hasn't. This is Port of Entry, the Parker Edison Project. Listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. Thank you for listening to KPBS Podcast and for being part of our region's virtual public square, where you learn not only about the headlines of the day, but about culture, music, and the issues that are important to all of us. Help keep the virtual square alive and well. Support podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. And thanks again. that I will and faithfully discharge the duties, discharge the duties upon which I am about to enter, upon which I am about to enter. Meet the new sheriff in town, a swearing-in ceremony for Bill Gore at headquarters in Kearney Mesa. He'll finish out the remainder of Bill Collender's term. Collender had been sheriff for 14 years. Gore becomes the 29th sheriff in county history. I think we have a proven record of using the latest in technology uh, to stay ahead of crime in this county. Uh, we will go after and aggressively pursue federal grants wherever it's appropriate. And I think we have to take our level of cooperation and collaboration in this county to a new level. Gore had been under sheriff. Before that, he had a long career in the FBI where he ran the San Diego office. That's how County News Service covered the first swearing-in of Sheriff Bill Gore. That was back in July of 2009. And this weekend, the long-serving law enforcement officer is returning to civilian life after stepping into retirement on Thursday. And all this is happening just months ahead of an election for his successor. So why now? The Union Tribune's Charles Clark had a recent column that dives into Gore's departure and some trust issues inside the department and the community that it serves. Okay, so we know that former Sheriff Gore has certainly earned his right to retire. He's 74 years old. He spent decades working in law enforcement, the bulk of it here in San Diego. But the announcement was sudden with just a few weeks notice. Could he have gone about this differently? I mean, he he certainly could have, right? I mean, he could have filled out the remainder of his term and held office till the end of the year. At the same time, you know, I think that if he was at the point, right, where he felt like it was time for him to step away and he wasn't going to be able to, to give what he needed to to the post anyway. Maybe it does make sense to just step aside and let an interim sheriff who can devote their full attention to addressing the many problems the county is facing. 
And we know that the County Board of Supervisors, they're going to be the ones that are choosing an interim sheriff until a new one is elected. It's the same situation that landed Bill Gore the position back in 2009, but we have a very different dynamic politically now versus 13 years ago. Charles, do you think that a new board led by Democrats approaches this decision any differently? Uh, I think early signs are absolutely. Nathan Fletcher, the chair of the board, has you know pretty much flat out stated that he will not appoint or sign on to appoint anyone who is a, currently a candidate for sheriff, uh, which, right, would be a dramatic contrast to kind of how Gore came into office to begin with that allowed him to run as a de facto incumbent. So it, it certainly seems like the county board uh, adventure, I guess they're going to follow Fletcher's lead and not put their thumb on the scale in any way. With no candidate likely to be chosen then to fill this interim role, do you think that that makes this election maybe more fair for those who are running? I do. I I really do. I mean, I think, you know, I thought it was quite telling when this news came out initially that that was one of the first things you saw people kind of speculating about online, right, was, oh, it was Gore stepping down early to to help pave the way for his, you know, chosen successor. Now, obviously, it, you know, as we got a little farther away, it seems pretty clear that's not the case. But people wouldn't have had that concern, right, if it weren't for the fact that having someone who is running on the ballot even as interim sheriff is a distinct advantage over their competitors, right? It essentially allows them to run as if they are the incumbent. And I believe on the ballot, it would have, you know, appeared that they were, you know, acting sheriff or something of that sort. So it certainly makes sure there's a more even playing field, I think. Your column is all about the trust between the community and the sheriff's department. What do you feel is the biggest issue contributing towards some of that mistrust or is there mistrust? Well, I think there's certainly mistrust in certain segments of our community. I mean, I know there's some pl- you know parts of the county that are quite comfortable with the way the sheriff's department is operated. Uh, I think there are other subsets of this county that certainly are not. And I think for those that have some trust issues with the department, myself included, I, I think the two big things it kind of comes back to are, you know, transparency and candidness, right? So this is a department that hasn't been the most transparent, you know, when it comes to a variety of issues, be it, you know, how open they are about announcing jail deaths, be it their disparities in policing, or, you know, even something like I remember sitting in a board meeting many, many years ago, where, you know, immigration advocates were very frustrated because they couldn't really get a better feel for how much the department was actually interacting with ICE, uh, because the data that the department had internally collected even year to year was dramatically different. So I think that's certainly a big part of it. And then I think the other part would be candidness. And by that, I think that really relates to the racial disparity side of this. I think there is certainly a frustration at this point, both with San Diego County law enforcement and the city of San Diego Police Department when it comes to just the racial disparities we see in policing. I mean, we've had study after study bear that out. By and large, it seemed like law enforcement leaders tended to to try to pretend that anything other than bias was at least contributing to the problem. You also write that voters will need to really examine who will ultimately get this job. Among the four known candidates that are in this race, do you feel that there's potential for people to be able to achieve that goal? I certainly think so. I mean, one nice thing that it looks like, at least for the four candidates in the race, is they all do have, you know, careers in law enforcement, right? And careers in public service, uh, even if it's not in a, you know, more 
public facing capacity, they do have a record to run on that you should be able to look at and they should be able to talk about quite comfortably and openly. So that certainly should help. I I think the big thing really is just going to fall on voters to care enough to. I, I think, you know, county sheriff is one of those positions that probably doesn't get the amount of attention that it should from voters. I think there's kind of just a de facto thing because the county sheriff tends to be out of sight, out of mind for a lot of people. But it is, you know, the the head of the biggest law enforcement agency in the region. So whoever does fill that seat will have plenty of power and influence to, you know, impact how law enforcement looks like here. Okay, let's talk about some memorable Bill Gore moments. We know that he can be a somewhat soft-spoken as a public figure. Charles, what do you think his legacy is here in San Diego? I'm not quite sure. You know, it, it is an, he's an interesting figure in that he's, as you pointed out, a pretty soft-spoken guy, at least in public. He never came off as a real firebrand, which I think, frankly, probably served him well as sheriff. I think for most people, you know, the sheriff is not someone you want to be out there as this really hyper-political figure. I, I think that's certainly kind of par for how Gore operated. It was I think he kind of just did the work, and, and I don't think he was particularly seeking of the public approval. As far as his legacy, you know, I think the the two big things I kind of look at, at least for him as a positive legacy perspective, are one, my understanding is that the department did uh, get much more fluid in how it worked with federal law enforcement agencies, be it on different task force and things. Now, the flip side of that, you know, I know a lot of people are very uncomfortable with their relationship with immigration and customs enforcement, which I think there are some very fair concerns there. But given we are a border community, I'm sure there's a lot of people who really value the fact that the sheriff did seem to develop a, a better working or a more clear working relationship with some of those agencies. And I, I think the other thing, right, is just in general, you know, remove the, the last few years because those are kind of a, a weird thing from a data standpoint. But in general, crime, you know, as it has been for you know most of the nation, has been on the decline, uh, at least violent crime. And it seemed like my understanding is San Diego County tended to follow that suit. Now, the flip side of it is there's a lot of very big problems that the next sheriff will be stepping into. You know, they may not necessarily be directly... Gore's fault, but they are some serious issues plaguing the department, right? Jail deaths being one of the biggest, you know, we have one of the highest mortality rates or the highest mortality rate in the state for county jails. So that's certainly something, you know, that will be looked at. Well, it's definitely always good to get your perspective, Charles. Charles Clark is a columnist for the San Diego Union Tribune. And Charles, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Matt. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.
Transforming something so huge and entrenched like our healthcare system is a heavy lift, and it proved to be too much once again this week. California will not become the first state in the nation to move to a single-payer system. It dashes the hopes of progressives, who say that corporate interests fueled by billions of dollars in profits weigh too heavily on Democrats. Keep in mind, they hold full control of what gets done in Sacramento, and in this case, what doesn't get done. Joining us is reporter Alexi Kosef. He's been covering the legislature for years for the Sacramento Bee and San Francisco Chronicle. He recently joined the news team up at Cal Matters, and he's here on Roundtable now. Hey, Alexi. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so first off, can you define what a single health care payer system actually is? So this is a bill that would have moved California toward a universal health care system that's entirely taxpayer-funded and run by the government. It would have moved to do away with private insurers in almost all cases, and created the kind of universal system that we might see in other countries like Canada or many European countries. Just a few weeks ago, we talked with your colleague, Cal Matters Health reporter Kristen Huang. We brought up a telling moment when Governor Newsom pitched something far less for health care in his budget proposal. Here's some of that. The difference here is when you are in a position of responsibility, you've got to apply, you've got to manifest the ideal. This is hard work. It's one thing to say, it's another to do. And with respect, uh, there are many different pathways to achieve the goal. Alexi, I wonder, was the writing on the wall at that point with the governor sort of presenting his own counterproposal? I don't think that his lack of endorsement is what killed it, but it certainly doesn't help when you've got a very controversial issue like this and you've got interests on all sides lobbying and trying to kill the bill. It certainly would have helped if he had been out there pushing to keep this conversation going. Well, it's no secret that the current system, it leaves a lot of people dissatisfied. We know it can be expensive and it can be largely tied to people having a full-time job. So Alexi, why didn't politicians just move this forward knowing that many people might want something different here? You would think that in a state like California, which is seen as this liberal bastion for the country, that this might be the best opportunity that supporters of a single-payer system have for getting this through. But this is also an enormous state, and doing anything like this is enormously complicated. Um, The reality is that even with as much work as the supporters of this proposal had put into it, it was still just a sketch of an idea. They hadn't worked out all the details, and it was going to take a lot more development to really get it into a full-fledged idea. So that already had a lot of people sort of nervous and wondering about whether it was something they would want to support. Then you add on the very complex politics of an issue like this. You had insurance companies and the California Chamber of Commerce and doctors and all kinds of powerful groups that have a very big lobbying presence at the Capitol running a very intense campaign to try and kill the bill. And at the same time, you had Republican lawmakers hoping to make a election issue out of this by pointing out that it would require enormous tax increases to pay for it and sort of trying to scare voters and paint Democrats as as these you know tax-hungry politicians. And 
it just started to look like a very unappealing option for a lot of the lawmakers who had to consider this proposal. Well, let's get into some of the politics of this here. We know that you yourself, you spend a lot of time at the Capitol. Uh, Alexi, how would you describe the political spectrum between, you know, progressive Democrats who are upset by what happened this week and those unnamed Democrats who simply couldn't support the bill? One thing to know about the Capitol in Sacramento is that it is a supermajority Democratic legislature. In fact, both houses of the legislature, the Assembly and the Senate, have three quarters Democrats. So as you can imagine, that means it's a very big tent party. You have a broad spectrum from the most leftist kind of lawmakers from San Francisco and Oakland to some very, very moderate Democrats who come from the Central Valley, Orange County, places like that. And it's hard to get everybody unified around a a policy like this. They needed 41 votes in this 80-person chamber, so they could lose a lot of Democrats and still get it through. The problem is that the pressure really started ramping up in, in recent weeks from progressives, activists from the party started threatening to pull the endorsement of Democrats who did not vote for the bill. And that actually sort of had maybe the opposite effect of what they intended. Instead of drawing people more toward supporting this bill, it really turned off a lot of people who were on the fence. Health has been top of mind for a lot of us the past couple of years, especially during the pandemic. With that in mind, Alexi, was there a hope among progressive that things might be different this time? That, you know, maybe perhaps this, you know, collective experience might have been the push that they needed to get it over the hill? Absolutely. Certainly you heard that from activists who felt like now more than ever, the pandemic has shown that we need a healthcare system that is going to care for everybody and not going to let people fall through the cracks. And they used that in their messaging and they hoped that would convince more people to get on their side. I think it also made the pain of this loss a lot harder for them to accept. Many of them have been very angry, uh, lashing out online and directly to lawmakers who didn't support the bill. And even some who did, uh, the author, um, Ash Kalra, he has borne the brunt of their frustration. Many of them have accused him of betraying their cause and even threatened to primary him or try and push him out of office because they feel let down by the fact that he didn't bring it up for a vote. And then in terms of this single-payer push, is it completely dead in the water? So this particular bill is done. It needed to pass the Assembly by Monday, and it didn't. It seems rather late in the year for activists to try again. And so it's more likely that they'll regroup and perhaps try and come back next year with another proposal. But so far, Ashkara has been unwilling to sort of discuss what his plans are. And it's not clear whether he'll be the one to carry it, if perhaps he's burned those bridges and somebody else might become the next champion for it in the legislature. You know, at this stage, everybody's still sort of picking up the pieces. I've been talking with Alexei Kosev. He covers the legislature for Cal Matters. And thanks so much for your time today, Alexei. Thank you.
Major League Baseball and its players are jeopardizing the start of their season with the ongoing lockout. Maybe they can learn something from San Diego's latest professional squad, the National Women's Soccer League. It's also known as the NWSL, and they've achieved labor peace just as teams are opening training camps. Here to talk about the breakthrough for women's sports and San Diego's newest team is Alicia Rodriguez. She covers soccer for SB Nation, and she's here on Roundtable Now. Hey, Alicia. Hey, how's it going? Going well. So we know that the National Women's Soccer League, it's new to San Diego, but it's been around for nearly a decade. And it really is a chance to see some top level competition. Stars from Team USA and other countries are a part of this league. Alicia, what should casual sports fans know about the on field product here? Well, I think the big thing is that it's uh, certainly one of the best leagues in the world for women's soccer, quite possibly the very best. I think the the level of competition is top to bottom, probably the, the most competitive overall in, in world soccer. You know, the women's game is, is catching up to what the men have been doing for uh, over a century at this point. So they still have some time and, and some space to, to catch up. But I think the NWSL, it, it's, its real selling point is not only the talent level at the very top, but the fact that I think pretty much every week, you know, any team that comes into a match has a good shot of winning. And, you know, I think that's something that American sports fans are, are very accustomed to and uh, something that's going to be uh, quite welcome. We know that this league is growing. It sits now at 12 teams, and both of these newcomers are from Southern California. We have the Wave, obviously, here in San Diego, and Angel City FC up in Los Angeles. Part of that process was furthered this week when the Players Union and the league reached its first collective bargaining agreement. We'll talk about what's in it for the players in just a moment, but first, generally, what makes this such a big step forward? The biggest reason is because it's the the first CBA in league history, and um, I think anybody who knows anything about uh, labor organization, getting a union off the ground uh, in any workplace is, is pretty difficult. It's, it's a long haul. It's something that takes a long time. And then on top of that, you know, to have that first CBA, that sets the groundwork for what's going to come, you know, later. And I think all in all, uh, the initial impressions are that this was, especially for a first CBA, but in general, I think it, it was a good deal for the players overall. Yeah, I think something that everybody can understand, you know, these players, these athletes, they're at the top of their game and they want their pay to reflect that. Generally, how does this new CBA improve their situation? The minimum salary, so that's the lowest paid players in the league, are going to be making around 35000 annually. For context, when the league launched in 2013, the maximum salary was not that high. So uh, we've come quite a ways in a, in a decade. And obviously, 35000 does not seem like a lot compared to uh, many other American pro sports, but uh, you have to start somewhere. And I think that the fact that they're getting closer and closer to a living wage, I think in San Diego, you know, you you have to be a little bit creative with, you know, 35000 on up salary, but you, you can get by if, if you, you know, take on a couple of roommates and find a good spot to live. You know, it, it's certainly possible. And, and in the past, frankly, it was not possible. Players would have to live with host families. They would have to take two or three additional jobs on top of being players. So uh, we're getting to a moment where I think, you know, they can really focus on being professional athletes. So financially, it's, it's, it's a, a really good start for them. Negotiations like these are often a lot more than just about a paycheck. What, what else in this deal got your attention? Yeah, there's a lot of other benefits. They have stated leave policies for a variety of, of kinds of leave, whether it's, you know, mere vacation time, you know, having that spelled out, having leave for mental health, for parental leave, obviously, 
Some of the players in the league are parents. Some of them give birth themselves. And that obviously is a big time commitment for them, something that they have to interrupt their careers to to do. If they adopt, they can also, they're also entitled to leave. So I think that's a really great step as well. And then they also have minimum standards for medical personnel on teams, which you may say, well, that seems like an odd provision to include. But the reason they do that is because um, in the past, there's been some problems on some of the teams in the league with having enough support staff to help the players, you know, not having a trainer on site during practices, things like that. You know, so having that spelled out is really important because they need that, that support to make sure that they can do their jobs properly. The league has had a bit of a tumultuous offseason, and that included a sexual harassment scandal. Two players who are now with The Wave, Mana Shim and Alex Morgan, they went public with their stories. How were they instrumental in this effort to fix some of the culture, not just within the league, but women's sports in general? Yeah, it's been a, a very strange year in a lot of respects, and I think the positivity surrounding the CBA is is tempered certainly by many of the scandals that came out uh, last year. And and frankly, there were quite a lot of them. And, and that scandal of sexual harassment and, and sexual coercion that you mentioned happened in Portland and a, a couple other markets. That was obviously the biggest uh, bombshell. It's really nice to see Manishim turn up in San Diego's camp. You know, she was one of the players who very bravely spoke about her experiences. And, you know, Alex Morgan is a superstar. She really... I think, you know, obviously Mana and the others who experienced the the trauma, having to relive it, having to uh, tell the world about it, they're extremely brave for for doing that in the first place. But someone like Alex Morgan, who presumably, you know, was not the target of, of the same harassment due to her, her status as a star, you know, she really stuck her neck out and supported her teammates. And I, I think the efforts that she's done behind the scenes to really be an ally for her teammates is, has been really tremendous. So I think that as an aside, that's a really exciting thing for San Diego to have as kind of the, the superstar of their team, somebody who is that caring for, you know, for our teammates and whatnot. But it's been a tough time. And, and these are not scars that are going to go away overnight. All right, now let's dive into some San Diego soccer talk here. After the CBA was announced, the wave, they broke camp up in Del Mar. What are you hearing about how it's going up there so far? Well, there's a lot of excitement. <laughs> you know, I think one of the fun things is the very first training camp, you know, for an expansion team is just so exciting. And uh, that excitement is, is is palpable. And, you know, the players are excited. Obviously, the club is excited. It, you know, it's just a lot of fun to see everyone see something that has been in the works for so long come to fruition and uh, get out there, put on that team gear, kick the balls around, um, and really get ready for the season ahead. Yeah, you know, San Diegans who have been around for a little bit, they might remember going to up to Charger training camps or even making the drive out to Arizona for Padre spring training, getting a look at some baseball there. Uh, Alicia, do we know if the wave practices, are they open to the public or are there any uh, upcoming fan events being planned? So because of COVID, you know, we're still in that era. So uh, things are, are still pretty locked down. I think the, the best course of action, if, if you're a fan and you're interested in, in checking something out, is to, if you're able to, sign up to be a season ticket holder. Um, and, you know, then you'll find out kind of the exclusive events, that sort of thing. Um, or you can join a supporter group. Uh, for example, there's the Sirens. You know, I think that's kind of your best in as far as finding out about fan events and exclusives and that kind of thing. But um, I think probably we'll see those kinds of events leading up to a season more in the future, you know, knock on wood, assuming that we'll get through this COVID era. 
um, before too long. Well, we are getting very close. The Waves inaugural season begins next month. They'll first play at the University of San Diego before moving into the brand new Snapdragon Stadium in Mission Valley. That's going to happen this summer. Alicia, how can we follow your coverage of the league between now and then? You can find my work on San Diego Wave FC on legconfidential.com, which is part of the SB Nation Network. And you can find me on Twitter at Soccer Musings. I've been talking with SB Nation reporter Alicia Rodriguez. And Alicia, thanks so much for your time. Of course. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's edition of KPBS Roundtable. And thank you to my guests, Charles Clark from the San Diego Union Tribune, Alexi Kosseff from Cal Matters, and Alicia Rodriguez from SB Nation. If you missed any part of our show, you can listen anytime on the KPBS Roundtable podcast. I'm Matt Hoffman. Join us next week on Roundtable. Roundtable.